Welcome into this Sun Devil Source Report podcast. On this episode, we will dive into the big breaking story that uh, came this morning regarding the NCAA and some bribery allegations. Uh, get into some comments Coach Graham made during the week as it unfolds into the Stanford game week. And then we'll really dive into a closing Oregon and ASU's big home victory against the number 24th ranked team in the country. Guys, how are we doing today? Doing good. Great as always. Great as always. Love to hear that. So let's let's start with the big story. Uh, four assistant coaches across the country, two in the Pac-12, um, were charged with fraud and corruption. It's turning into an FBI investigation, so above the NCAA. Uh, two of the two Pac-12 coaches involved were U of A's Emmanuel Richardson and USC's Tony Bland. Um, the acting United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, who was in the press conference regarding the story earlier today, talked about really how disappointing it is. There was a big, long quote um, about how, you know, prospects are being treated like coyotes. There's cash bribes. Mm-hmm. Uh, really not a good situation. Uh, Chris, you made a post, longer post in the in the sanctuary regarding this, but really any more thoughts you have on it? I'm in, on one hand, I'm, I'm surprised that the FBI became involved and this has gone to where it is now. And, and really we're at the, the tip of the iceberg on this because this is very far reaching implications in, in, in basketball. Um, you know, whether or not these four programs, these coaches were guilty of wrongdoing or not is yet to be proven. But I can assure everyone that anecdotally I've heard about many, many other programs being involved in, um, pay for play, essentially, like, you know, uh, uh, doing things that are impermissible to get players onto their campus and into their programs. And uh, the NCAA has some challenges that the FBI does not. Primarily, that's related to subpoena power. Um, the NCAA can get schools and investigations to turn over their emails, to turn over their phone records if their school issued phones. And there's other things that they have the ability to, to get into. But but there's a wealth of things that they cannot access. Banking records, uh, burner phones, secondary personal phones, personal email accounts. Uh, coaching staffs who are engaged in this sort of behavior are typically trying to do things that would prevent that from coming to light by the to the NCAA. And... Some would argue, in fact, I would argue that the NCAA doesn't probably want to bust too many of these programs because it's walking a tightrope of trying to still be the governing body of college athletics. And if you start writing too many tickets to the people that you're policing, they might just say, well, we don't need you to be the sheriff in town anymore we don't need that from you guys so we're going to go and do and you know we're going to uh break off we're going to have our own you know government uh, governing body for college athletics um and so i can't say that things are a lot worse now than they were 20 years ago 30 years ago 50 years ago because i have only really covered college athletics and recruiting for about 15 or so years but it is really bad. There's a lot of conversations, even among college coaches, about 
what's taking place currently. A lot of fear. Uh, if I don't cheat, how am I going to compete mm-hmm. in, in my school? What happens to my job? There's a resentment that that is behind the scenes going on about others who are cheating. While you know, school A is cheating, school B isn't cheating, um, and for the FBI to come to get involved. The, the part that's not surprising is this has now become something that is so widely discussed behind the scenes and even kind of bubbling to the surface in, in the public venue about, you know, rumors about what schools are doing what to get players. And I've heard so many of them over the years that the pervasiveness of it almost required the FBI to become involved at some level. You have guys making Facebook Live things about their siblings taking money. Uh, and and, and um, the hotline that now has gone up that's associated with this could just, this could be like a Pandora's box that we're now getting into. So I think that the ramifications are so far-reaching and the scope of this thing is so significant that it's very difficult to put your arms around. Mm. And so, you know, we talked about this. We're, we could do a whole podcast on this. We no really doubt could. we could. <laughs> but just one last thing to hit on. You know, we're kind of reading people's reactions to this, or I guess really lack thereof. And I mean, you kind of touched on it, but people aren't really reacting to this the way they probably should be. Yeah. Well, look, one of the things that I've sort of felt about the way fans are with college athletics, I don't really care how you win as long as you don't get in trouble for how you're winning. And I get the experience of what it feels like to go to a final four or to be in a, a BCS playoff, uh, college football championship playoff, whatever the case may be. A lot of the reactions that we're seeing to this are more about, are we really in that much trouble? It's not like fans who are mad at their schools and their coaches for putting themselves in that situation. And, and the fact that it's wrong, it's more about the fact that they got caught and what this means to their program right. currently and then, and, the, and then beyond. And I, I sort of understand that. Now, on the ASU portion, because we've got to you know, sort, of, sort of bring this full circle to ASU, um, I did say, a lot of people know, that when ASU signed with Adidas in 2014, that, that was something that could really benefit the ASU program. Because ASU, uh, as it turned out, was going to, to transition into being the only Adidas-sponsored school in the Pac-12, and it really the only major conference school in the West. UCLA left to sign with um, Under Armour around the same time. And the reason that I, that I knew that it would benefit ASU is because you have a grassroots basketball culture, AAU basketball, where it's shoe-sponsored driven, they're pouring millions of dollars annually into that. And they're they're doing that because they're trying to influence young people. They're trying to, you know, get the most bang for their buck with their brand. But it goes beyond that. They're trying to get their Adidas-sponsored youth basketball players to Adidas universities. And then they want to get those players who are the best of the best into Adidas contracts once they get out of college. Right. So 
whether you're paying players, you're not playing players or whatever, everyone involved in this is trying to figure out the angle on how we get Adidas grassroots players to go to Adidas schools, to then go to Adidas deals in a way that, that, that makes everybody happy with that experience. Now that can be permissible, that could be impermissible as it relates to the NCAA. That can be uh, involving inducements, that could be not involving inducements. Now I'm not saying anything here about me having uh, any knowledge of ASU doing things that are untoward or ASU doing things that are not untoward. I, that's not what this is about because I don't have anything to report on any of that. But the benefits that ASU had as I perceive them to be can tangentially be associated with some of this stuff because people are going to sort of think about what know how we best service ourselves given the nature of these relationships and so while ASU of course is not in any way uh, referenced in any of this these indictments or been mentioned in any way um, it still operates within this overall you know uh, institution within this overall um, setup that is college basketball and I don't think that there's any, if you go back far enough, right? We know ASU's had its experience with the, the uh, headache Smith and, and the point shaving. Bill Frieder's program got in trouble at ASU. If you go back far enough with almost any major program, you will find things. If you, if you turn over enough, you know, turn, turn over enough stones, you're going to find some things. And, so now it becomes how far is the FBI going to go and how far is the NCAA going to go in conjunction with the FBI? Because this leverages their ability to investigate it, the member institutions. Uh, and, if they, and, and really, they could take it as far as they want to. Because I guarantee you, you open a hotline, that hotline is going to get hit up with, 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 with calls from majority of the, the institutions about something that happened wrong at those at those schools that that's that's a given in my in my mind so i i think that this is just such a big story this is the biggest story that has happened in my career covering college athletics so at least the last 20 years um when you look at just the totality of it and the people that have been that are that have been and are going to be affected by this and it's obviously nowhere near done. This is really just the beginning from what it seems like. So uh, we'll see how it unfolds. We'll be talking um, about this yeah. in two weeks, two months, two years. Yeah. That's how big of a deal this is. No, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so on a much less somber and nerve-wracking note, I'm sure, for a lot of the listeners, let's move to ASU football, who just came off of a, a great win against Oregon, uh, heading into Stanford week, and uh, Coach Graham – had uh, a few interesting things to say in the last couple of days, one being Curtis Hodges will likely make his debut this week. Oh, that, that would certainly be interesting. The tallest receiver in ASU history, correct? Six yeah. foot six, six foot seven, six foot eight, somewhere between there. Seven foot two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he might as well be. It's going to be – I don't see how they plan to utilize him, though, just because I think Chris and I, we were just talking about before the podcast. Like, you know how. Yeah, it, well <laughs> – yeah, in the red zone. <laughs> okay. It's great. They're going to use it's not really. It doesn't seem like it's a matter of how. It's more a matter of why. Yeah, why? Yes. Because they have such a plethora of weapons. You have five receivers who have each gone over 100 yards. 
um, each of your first four games. I think it's the first time it's ever happened in ASU history. And you have one of your best receivers still sitting out who's going to return within two weeks. So it's kind of a, a head-scratcher only because he's a true freshman. You could probably preserve his uh, eligibility for another year. And Ryan Newsom, Ryan Jenkins haven't even been out there that much. Frank Darby yeah, has, has played really well when he's been out there but not gotten a lot of reps. And I just like it's kind of perplexing to me why five games into a season when you're two and two and your receivers are this talented, yeah. are you like, hey, let's we got another shiny new toy that we have in our box that yeah. we got to you know break out? That's the only way I can look at it. it um, if I was Curtis Hodges, I'd be like, nah, you, it's, I'm cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why don't yeah. you redshirt me? Like, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> let me get some. And, and keep in mind, how many ASU's top receivers are seniors? None. None. Mm-hmm. So therefore, same group next year. So he. So now he's going to play. So now he's yeah. going to play as a sophomore with all those yeah. guys being juniors. And now only have two years to really start. <laughs> right. If he, you know, if he develops into a starting so receiver. So I'm just saying, like, I, there's certain things I just haven't understood as far as like guys that they've played this year. Like Eno. We, we've talked in the past. You know, makes sense. Traylon Smith. What you playing him on special yeah. teams and a few reps here and there at running yeah. back. Uh, how about you playing Alex That's Perry cool. in the first game? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. You're not going to play him again. So I understand that these coaches are not thinking about four years from now because they're trying to save their jobs and, and win right now. But I don't think that it's best for the individual players involved, and I think that that, that, that deserves to be mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and really the red zone factor was really the reasoning that we came up with and was really talked about with Curtis Hodges. But, you know, Nikhil Harry <laughs> – we yeah. keep talking about 50-50 <laughs> balls not being 50-50 balls with Nikhil yeah. Harry. Why do you need another guy like that? Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because I, I think Coach Graham made the comparison to him being so similar to Jalen Strong. And then when we were sitting in the press conference earlier, Nikhil was talking about how much of an honor it was to be compared to someone who we the first football game they said he ever saw or college football game he ever saw was – uh, Jalen Strong airs on the state football game. So he's always tried to mold his game after that. And you can see it a lot. Like the post-up game, uh, you don't really see too many, I guess, back shoulder throws, but the timing routes and allowing him to use his size. Uh, one of the things that Chris and I were mentioning before is that he doesn't really garner any separa- separation from defenders, but because of his length and I think just his ability to really time, or I guess like it's sort of a chemistry thing between him and Manny Wilkins, it's, it's really impressive to see just because – it's reminiscent of that Mike Burkevich-Taylor-Kelly connection with Jalen Strong. To, to this point, Zane, I think you made a good one. ASU has been in the red zone 14 times this year, and it has 12 touchdowns. Mm-hmm. They're not searching for some answer to some problem that they have. Yeah, just throw it up to Nikhil. In the, in the red <laughs> zone. They're doing fine in the red zone. So, I, again, I, I'm a little bit perplexed by this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you mentioned 12 of 14 in the red zone. The other two are field goals. And you talk about Brandon yeah. Ruiz, you know, kind of faced a little criticism in the first couple games, struggling to get touchbacks. You know, obviously we talked about the weird pooch kick thing in the San mm-hmm. Diego State game. But he's really come around. I mean, he's he's near the top in the country in t- touchbacks now. I think 21 for 24 was the stat. I mean, obviously a big game-winning really set-up field goal. Mm-hmm. There at the end against Oregon, and then the onside kick, which he almost recovered yeah. on his own. And Graham mentioned he's never been around a freshman kicker quite like Brandon Ruiz. Yeah, no, a couple games in, and you're already seeing how talented he is. I mean, the fact that they're willing to try out his first career kick from 40 plus yards, I thought in in, in and of itself that was impressive, Mark. But 50. just or for 50, mm-hmm. yes, it was from 50. That's 50 right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's some. It's a. It shows a lot of trust, and just again, 
the onside kick, another factor of trust. I think that's one of the things that, you know, coaches try to, you know, at least have in their kicker. We always see, you know, the hashtag college kickers on Twitter when you see a, a kicker make a blunder during the game. But Brandon Ruiz is really something special. Like, his, he's very talented. I'm just saying to myself, what must Zane Gonzalez think when he hears Todd Graham say, I haven't been around a freshman <laughs> kicker like this in my whole career? Dude, <laughs> you coach me. I'm the best kicker in, in the history of college football. I broke like more records than anybody else. I was pretty good, right? Um, yeah, that was kind of funny. That just speaks to Todd Graham's hyperbole, right? He or just, speaks to Brandon Ruiz's talent to potential. Could both be. of them. Yeah. yeah. Bo- both of them, but – but come on. Yeah, I mean, definitely the hard part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, okay, Brandon Ruiz, he's great. But Zane Gonzalez, pretty good. And I, I still say, going back, this is getting off on a tangent, but they should have just let Zane Gonzalez do kickoffs as a freshman because he would have been better than um, what they did end up doing there. Now, really, we're going to dive into the Oregon stuff. I mean, a big game, 37-35 win, ranked team comes into your into your territory. But really, they're, I guess, the second-ranked team since San Diego State is ranked now. They weren't ranked at the mm-hmm. time. But uh, took down Oregon, like I mentioned, 37-35. Another big game for Manny Wilkins in the passing game. Yeah, and it's not necessarily surprising at this point, you know. Like, the passing game um, is something that this offense is going to rely upon, I think, Again, we mentioned the plethora of weapons that they have. Got five guys gone over 100 yards in the first four games. I think they're capable to do that at just about any t- moment, or excuse me, not any moment, but any game. And I think the biggest thing is the chemistry. You look at what Manny Wilkins is able to do in terms of just having a trust and being willing not only to trust Nikhil Harry over you know the boundary side of the field, but over the middle when you're throwing the ball to Jalen Harvey, someone who came up with a couple big first downs during the middle of the game. Uh, Kyle Williams, the way that they were able to utilize him, Frank Darby down the field deep and being able to stretch guys out. Um, it's, re- it's really remarkable just to see the growth that the passing game has made, even in the absence of the running game so far. Seeing Manny Wilkins cry after the Texas Tech loss and how much that that bothered him, uh, in spite of Togram calling it the best performance that he thinks that he's had as a Sun Devil, and just the weight of that juxtaposed against how relaxed he felt and, and seemed to feel after the Oregon win and in you know just talking to media today as we're taping this and just being really like relaxed and in mm-hmm. such a good spirits I think it, I think it was a weight off of his shoulders to have to beat a ranked team a good opponent and it was a win that probably just really solidified his status as the the quarterback for this team yeah which even though he had been playing relatively well before this, they were losing, and so you could still make a case, oh, maybe they need to shake something up. That's done now. He, what, what he did against Oregon kind of ends that, especially when he hasn't thrown an interception this season, uh, set the school record in, in that so regard. Early. His leadership has gone to another level mm-hmm. by all accounts. So I think we're pretty much dialed into – Manny Wilkins being the guy and I just want I can't reiterate this enough remember what we said a week ago same same we were here same same time same place we talked about uh, Jake Plummer having a losing record in his first three years as a college quarterback and then one magical season and he's like revered as the best quarterback at ASU in the last quarter century I'm not saying that's going to happen with Manny Wilkins but things 
come together for guys when they have confidence and they have the right pieces around them. And we're seeing signs of development in that regard. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Manny Wilkins' crazy streak of no interceptions yet this season. He's the only quarterback in the Pac-12 who's yet to throw an interception. Uh, Luke Falk at WSU has one, and then there are a couple in there with two. But, yeah, pretty remarkable that he's, he's top five in passing efficiency, number three in passing yards per game, and still has yet to throw an interception. Yeah. And, you know, to counteract that, Kalen, you mentioned a little bit the run game and kind of how they haven't really been able to get it going. But mm-hmm. we, I think we saw another step in the Oregon game just with the – the way DeMario Richard was able to switch it up. Yeah, no, DeMario was absolutely – he looked like spry. He looked like himself. And we mentioned that back at Texas Tech, but really watching him – even there was a play There was a play where he got stopped in the backfield. It ended up being a gain, like a loss of like three or four, but it should have been six or seven. Dude ducked under four or five guys, and you're just seeing the old DeMario, the one that's really shifty, phone booth type of quickness, I guess. Not necessarily straight line speed, but – He's been a gamer, and he gained a couple of big first downs for ASU. Down that final drive, they showed that they were willing to trust him as sort of that bell cow back, um, especially when you know they needed to move the sticks and get two or three yards. He turned it into seven or eight at a couple of times. So it's good to see him back. But Kalen Balaj, um, as you probably just mentioned, the running game hasn't been at its peak only because I don't think he's been there yet. And I was speaking with him earlier, and he said that he, he knows, he says that the running game has not been – at what it's capable of being. And you can kind of tell just because of the way that he hasn't really been able to be unlocked. And really, DeMario Richard hasn't been fully unleashed either. So the moment that that running game does come together, um, again, I think it's more so a, a combination of the offensive line finding its chemistry. Uh, as we've seen throughout the week, they're still tinkering with some stuff. But the moment that offensive line comes together, I think it's going to mesh into, you know, we're going to see DeMario Richard and Campbell Lodge really, really take the next step especially considering it's their final seasons. And context is really important here. Uh, ASU is ninth in rushing, actually 11th in, in rushing yards per game, 11th, actually 12th in average yards per carry. Yeah, yards per carry. Okay, 2.6. But ASU has more rushing attempts than Washington State, UCLA, Oregon State, Colorado, Cal, Washington, Utah, USC, and even Stanford. What that tells me is they're not giving up their efforts to try to run the football. Tagram said this week, Billy Napier deserves credit because they're still trying to force running the, the ball. And we saw that in a critical situation. It would have been easy for a coordinator to say, we can't run the football here, and we and so they maybe you throw the ball there on that last drive, and maybe maybe you don't take the lead, maybe you don't win the game, maybe you lose because you have a couple of incomplete passes, mm-hmm. and you're unsuccessful. They went to Demario Richard like a, a half dozen times on the yeah. last drive, first down run, second down run, first down run, first down run, and and it worked. And I think a lot of coordinators they wouldn't have had that level of confidence yeah. in doing that. And and I think it speaks to Napier's sort of feel for that situationally in light of the play differential in the game, which was really significant in ASU's favor because you had a, a, a Oregon defense that was probably dragging there in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about that play differential. Obviously it is – largely due to the fact that ASU didn't give up running the ball, but how much of an effect do you think that had on a team like Oregon, you know, 
explosive offense used to getting off the field pretty quickly, but 30 plays is, is a lot of plays. And a lot of it had to do with its third down defense. When you look at what ASU was able to do, you know, they, they were the worst team in the country coming in in terms of third down defense and ended up stonewalling Oregon for one, going one for 11, which um, we'll probably get into it for our play anatomy this week, but their third down defense, just looking at the coverages that they were willing to roll out, especially on third down and long, um, they had their cornerbacks a lot in, in deeper depths, uh, even though they were, weren't as aggressive on every single third down play. Um, they were be willing to try out more cover zero looks back to that old uh, Todd Graham aggressive approach defensively that really put the pressure on Herbert to make plays. And, I, I mean, you, you got to give them credit for making the adjustment, even though it's taking them three or four weeks, but it, you'd rather the adjustment be made this early in the season to see what you needed to do to fix it. Um, especially, uh, as you mentioned, Zane, against such an explosive offense. A couple key things here. Oregon had 14 penalties in the game for 99 yards. They shot themselves in the foot and were behind schedule so many times, especially in that first half, that it just led to a lot of third and long situations. Normally, Oregon's used to giving the ball to Royce Freeman putting themselves in really manageable second and third downs, having early play success. They didn't get into a rhythm because of the penalties. They didn't get into a rhythm because ASU had a pretty good game plan. They didn't have Charles Nelson, which was a big factor in this mm -hmm. game in terms of what he uh, affords them from a possession receiver standpoint in the slot. And, um, and all those things combined, plus ASU doing a good job when it, uh, when it generated third and long situations, um, played a huge role in this game. Oregon was averaging 42 points a game in the first half yeah. of its previous three games, and if not for being gifted seven points at the end of the half by ASU, would have would have had only seven points at intermission. So those things couldn't really be anticipated, especially in the broader context of how bad ASU had been on third third down defensively. Uh, in the three previous games. Mm -hmm. And something we keep talking about really here on the podcast is what Phil Bennett and Todd Graham are doing in terms of calling the defense and, you know, the flexibility and the balance of who does what and who decides what. And Kalen mentioned, you know, a lot more cover one, cover zero stuff coming into really this game against Oregon. So I guess what do you guys make of that, the fact that we see more in terms of their relationship? I think that you're starting to see more balance as it comes together. I think the first couple of weeks you saw Bennett's overhaul. Like you could tell everything looked a lot more conservative, especially on, again, like third down plays. We saw the coverage desk be a little bit tighter and not give the receiver, excuse me, defensive backs more leeway to make mistakes. I think against Oregon, not only were you seeing um, more, I guess, like a more conservative approach within the secondary, but a more aggressive front seven that was willing to come after and really you know, be the aggressor. And that's one of the things that I, we've known about Todd Graham since he's been at Arizona State is that his defense is going to make the offense cater to that or to the, to his defense as in turn, instead of it being the other way around uh, where he's playing more defensive, conservative football. So I think you're going to see more of a marriage between the two. I think against Oregon you're just seeing like little hints and pieces of signs of that. In the first couple games, I was really struck by how much Todd Graham avoided Phil Bennett on the sidelines. I think that he really wanted to just sit back, see what Bennett was doing, evaluate it, let him really take charge of the defense and get an understanding of his players without that being too influenced. 
uh, without having somebody just kind of over his shoulder all the time. And, and now that that sort of happened, I think now you're seeing Todd kind of come to him and say, Hey, what do you think about this and this situation? You know, here, maybe I like this because our, our players seem a little bit better, better suited for that. And we know that Todd Graham has been hyper aggressive in terms of playing man coverage and rushing six guys a lot. That's, he did that more than anybody in the country uh, in the last five years before this season. And in the first three games this year, we saw them rush three only on third downs. I'm not exaggerating. I would say that they, in three games, rush three as much or more than Tagram only rushed three in his entire first five years. <laughs> Yeah. Like that just didn't happen. Now, part of what happened this last week when they went to a lot more five and six man pressures and a lot more zero coverage with man man defense across the board is they lost Karan Crump, and he's obviously your best pass rusher. And so they're using Abe Thompson a little bit differently, and he's not going to get home to your quarterback. So you have to manufacture that a little bit more. Part of it is seeing how unsuccessful that they had been on third downs in previous games, especially in third and long situations, 12 of 29 on seven or longer, three of six on 15 or longer. Those are atrocious numbers that would lead you to say, we need to really sort of think about doing something differently. And then also maybe it's because our, of, of Herbert and the opponent in, in terms of a game planning situation. Oregon doesn't have the bigger receivers that can beat us in certain types of situations let's you know try to just throw everything at herbert get him to the ground and 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 if they beat us in some one-on-one underneath or whatever then then so be it so the game plan changed crump being out nelson being out for oregon and graham sort of figuring out how do i best help bennett and uh, and coordinate with him as we're trying to put our players in the best position to be successful and for at least a day it really worked out, of course, coupled with Oregon, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, 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 injuries or, or self-inflicted wounds that it that it uh, put upon itself. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned Karan Crump. Obviously, someone has to replace that. And we saw Abe Thompson in the uh, in the Texas Tech game, and um, we saw him for the most part in the same position here against Oregon. But we also saw a little bit of JJ Wilson at mm-hmm. Devil Backer. Yeah, and it's going to be a an interesting experience like Chris mentioned you're not going to be able to generate as much pressure on the quarterback using the two of them uh Thompson is more of a coverage linebacker JJ Wilson being relatively I guess new to the position even though uh, Chris he was recruited as a linebacker right uh he was recruited as a as an athlete as an athlete okay yeah they they were they had told him that he was going to play as a three back you know the yeah yeah yeah. h-back type exactly so i mean you still got two really new guys and again like karan crump already not even if he was an average player at that position i mean you're you're not replacing that you're replacing someone Mm -hmm. who's leading the pac 12 and sacks the year before on pace to get to a game this year so um obviously they've taken a different approach you saw a lot more safety blitzes like dasman tazalatasi was um being used a lot to rush the quarterback especially on the standard downs um, I, th- I noticed Christian Sam and DJ Calhoun being used to plug up A-gaps a little bit more often. I uh, don't know if they were, like, green docking or not, but it, it was a different approach. Like, you're seeing them being willing to blitz from different sides of the field, not just the corner blitzes opposite of where Karan Crump was coming from. So I think Bennett's defensive scheme is going to be molded according to what the personnel that he has. There were a couple adjustments that I noticed in this game that I think were very significant and probably – largely missed by by people who are just kind of watched it casually 
One was ASU's decision to move Jamarcus Rhodes all the way across the field into the boundary right. against certain formations, game. especially when Oregon went to trips into the boundary. Mm-hmm. What ASU had been doing in the past three games is they would kick out Christian Sam onto that side and they'd, they'd rotate Jamarcus Rhodes into an inside linebacker alignment. But then opponents were running the ball really successfully against ASU when they were doing that inside because Jamarcus Rhodes, not really an inside linebacker. He's good. Uh, he's stout at the line of scrimmage on the perimeter, but not in the box, you know, behind playing behind a defensive line and reading it. So they made a big adjustment there that I think paid dividends. Uh, and I noticed on several of those formations, Christian Sam was there in the gap to make plays against Freeman that if, if that was Jamarcus Rhodes, there would have been a different outcome. Yeah. So they so they made a really smart tactical decision in that regard. Then the other thing that I noticed in this game was an in-game adjustment. Uh, what Oregon was doing, they, it, it went away from 11 personnel to some 20 personnel with two backs for a period of time, and they were flooding the boundary side and trying to target Chase Lucas in his zone with a back following on the heels of a wide receiver so they were getting two guys into that area and chase lucas was having to basically play between the space and and asu wasn't able to carry the back that far or they were playing just flat zones Uh, and and asu made an adjustment to that one of the things i noticed was uh, uh, asu starting back safeties tautalatasi and chad adams combined for three tackles in the game and Chase Lucas had eight by himself. Yeah. That's be, that's not because uh, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see your cornerbacks have to make eight tackles, right? The, that happened because of Oregon spotting a, a weakness in what ASU was doing schematically, and then ASU adjusting to that weakness that took away some of that action uh, later in the game when uh, they really needed to. So I, I have to give a lot of credit because Phil Bennett figured those things out on his own or in concert with his uh, his uh, other uh, coaches or Todd Graham, and those things really worked for ASU. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and then the pass defense, uh, obviously up to a big challenge, but Oregon was without their leading receiver, Charles Nelson. Chase Lucas made his first career start, so the play of the secondary, and, and you know, like we talked about, a mm-hmm. lot more pressure really on the back end, asked to plug more of the run game, get pressure on the quarterback, so – a big game for the secondary. How do you think they played? I think they did really well, and that was something I was going to mention too. Like throughout the game, you saw Herbert make a couple of throws that if the defender was like a step behind the receiver, be able to make a catch. I think one to Breland where it looked like he had the ball, ended up rolling over, dropped it. Uh, there was Johnny Johnson who had a catch where Chase Lucas was all over him, ended up knocking the ball. You got to give, and even Jamarcus Rhodes included in that secondary group. They did a really good job of sticking with their receivers downfield and allowing the pressure up front to get to Herbert and really force him to try and make plays across the field, and he wasn't able to. Only about half of Herbert's 19 completions actually went to wide receivers, and the rest were to tight ends and running backs. And mm-hmm. Nelson in the slot is is so good and so important to Oregon because when they need to get – into manageable situations on first and second down, they go to him all the time because he gets separation underneath and he's hard for you to be able to limit in that kind of a way. Plus he has that explosive capability to his game that we saw uh, in the red zone where they ran these uh, slot fades to the corner. What Oregon tried to do 
with Nelson out was move their second best receiver, Mitchell, into the slot on some occasions. He had a corner fade touchdown uh, against ASU in this game. The one receiving touchdown, oh, Johnny Johnson caught one. So one of their two receiving touchdowns uh, by wide receivers. But overall, it just they weren't nearly as effective. They lost the dimensionality to their game by not having Nelson out there. I thought even before the game, I wrote in the preview that it was probably a 7 to 10 point thing, just not having Nelson. But but in looking at it, the way that Oregon was kept off schedule on early downs, it may have even been more than that. I think it was just a huge loss. And I understand ASU fans are going to say, well, ASU didn't have Karan Crump and ASU didn't have John Humphrey. That's that's absolutely true. I'm not, I'm not discounting that at all. But Oregon just did not look like the same offense that it had been in the first three games. And finally, special teams. We already talked a little bit about Brandon Ruiz and the game he had. But, you know, Chris, one of the more interesting decisions you talked about uh, in the postgame show was having Ryan Newsom back there at the end of the first half to receive that punt that obviously turned into a muff and then immediate points for Oregon to end the first half. As much credit as you give ASU for the onside kick, which it recognized by watching film at Oregon and executed really well and in a game where it made a lot of sense to do it because you figured it was going to be an up and down affair or not as much of a field position game, you have to scratch your head at why ASU was sending back anyone to return a punt with under a minute left in the half. The the worst case scenario there is Oregon downs the ball at the one or the two. You have to run the ball out without taking a safety if you're ASU. Now, if that goes poorly, you give up two points, you kick off, there's going to be no time on the clock, and, the, and, the, and the, that's the end of the half. The downside to doing what you did by putting somebody back there is exactly what happened, which is you muff, they 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 recover it, and then they score a touchdown on the very that's next play. That's 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 a coaching mistake. It's a coaching mistake. I think Sean Slocum is used to his career has been at the NFL level on special teams. You don't really have to worry about a guy fielding a punt nearly as much at the mm-hmm. NFL level as you do in college. Yeah. Sometimes guys muff the, the, the punt in, even in the NFL, yeah. but in the NFL you don't even see them put a guy back there in that situation. And 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 especially, and I hate to say this because it's, it's, it's signaling someone out, but we've said semi-often that in practices – uh, Ryan Newsom has a tendency to try to catch the ball with his body, mm-hmm. to drop, to dr- have some drops. And so why are you putting him back there in that situation as opposed to the guy that you had who you felt most reliably would catch the ball, yeah. which is Brimhall? And then there was an acknowledgement of the mistake after they did it because the very next time that they do field a punt, they put Brimhall back out there. Mm-hmm. That is almost mind-numbing, especially when you're coming off of having J.J. Wilson – get uh, in a in a weird formation, have a punt blocked at the end of a half in the previous game that gives up seven points. Uh, I just – I think there have been some mistakes in coaching on special teams that, that, that must be mentioned. Yeah, and it's always before the half. I, it's really weird. Every sing, it's literally been Makes every so single much game. Worse. That ex- and it ends up costing them. San Diego State lose by ten points. Could have been – I mean, it, it would have been an entirely different game had – yeah, absolutely. Texas Tech ended up losing by because it, it's a totally different game swinging it and allowing your opponent to set up right on your porch and then go down and score points. I wouldn't. This is. I wouldn't be saying anything about this if it happened at any other stage of the game. Yeah, but in that right situation. Mm-hmm. But it was. It was. <laughs> less than a minute left. What is the upside? Yeah. 
there's no upside especially to it. when you've already pretty much got control on the game yeah. you're winning the game you are you you beat them thoroughly in yeah. the half yeah no there's just no <laughs> excuse for that yeah, that's it, man. That's it. <laughs> all I got for you. That's all you got no to say about that. There's no excuse. No excuse for that. And then, um, yeah, that's all we got for Oregon. But uh, they'll move on to Stanford this weekend, their first day game. The players were pretty pumped about that. A lot of them mentioned today they're they're pretty excited to finally play a day to game. see the sun. <laughs> there'll, yeah. there'll probably be some more of those this season. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Direct Stan- TV fans aren't probably happy. Yeah, probably this. not. <laughs> Direct TV subscribers. Sorry. <laughs> 2017 is not your year. <laughs> but yeah, Stanford, another brutal matchup for ASU in this in this tough tough conference schedule. They're coming off a big win over UCLA. Uh, we'll dive more into this in our premium pod later in the week. But uh, initial thoughts, guys. It's going to be interesting. Good luck stopping Bryce Love, as Coach Graham has mentioned all week. Coach Graham has a Bryce Love infatuation. He he's like, love. like Pat Mahomes yes. level. Yeah, he, I, yeah, or Holmes as Holmes. I, I would say that. Yeah, but um, Graham went on and on today talking about Bryce Love and even said McCaffrey's a pretty special player and he does some different things, but he's not a, as good of a running back, pure running back as Bryce Love. He basically said that. Now we're talking about. You know, a Heisman a guy that a lot of people thought was going to win the Heisman Trophy winner for for a good chunk of last season, right? right. Until the, the kind of trailed off at the end. But, uh, but Bryce Love, eight point oh yards per carry in four games, and Stanford ten point eight yards per carry as a team. Those numbers aren't just the tops, the best in the Pac-12. They are so far and away better than anybody else. ASU gave up two hundred yards to Rashad Penny. And then had a much better performance against Royce Freeman in Oregon. Which one of those happens in Palo Alto? That's what I'm looking forward to talking about more on the next podcast. Yeah, again, premium pod, more of a Stanford preview. We'll have much more uh, preview content throughout the week, including what the players and coaches think. But that'll do it for us here on this episode. Uh, As always, thank you for listening.